Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. All right, this week is big. I can't believe this, this is a big one. Blur were one of the biggest bands in the world there for a while in the 90s. And uh, we're talking to the drummer, Dave Roundtree. I mean, I think most people know they were, I mean, they were making some of the best music that was coming out of Great Britain at that time. Bands like them and Oasis, of course. And uh, the band eventually sort of slowed down, not because they broke up or didn't like each other, but they were just getting so big that each one kind of went off and did their own thing. You know, Damon does gorillas and Alex makes cheese and Graham goes solo and Dave starts uh, scoring a lot of TV and film. And so that leads to his first solo album, which just came out last week called Radio Songs. And it sounds a lot like that sort of scenic scoring that he does so well with movies and TV. There's a, it's a real kind of a sonic landscape and soundscape, sort of a moody. I love it. And it, but it sounds almost like a, the soundtrack to a movie that doesn't exist. So I hope you guys will check out radio songs for sure. We talk about it in here. Something, a, a statement he makes in here, I can't stop thinking about. He doesn't really do a lot of drumming anymore. And I was like, you're the drummer for one of the biggest bands ever. How can you do that? And he said, well, I was a drummer in Blur, but I'm a musician first and foremost. I thought, what a really interesting way of saying that. That is so true. So the band does whatever they want. They're getting back together this summer to play some huge dates. And when they're not together, each guy does whatever they want because they're Blur and they're huge, you know? So anyway, we talk about Blur, obviously. We talk about some of the songs that I love that are Blur songs, where they came from, what was going on. We talk a lot about radio songs. We talk about Oasis, obviously, and a little bit of everything. So anyway, it was such, I mean, this, this is one of those times where it's like, I cannot believe I got to talk to X. Dave Roundtree of Blur is one of those people. He called me, I believe, from his home in London. All right. So first and foremost, Dave, um, I never quite, I never guessed that the first person with Blur that I would have the opportunity to interview would be you because you're not necessarily known for like, you know, a hearty side project or solo career or anything like that. You don't make cheese and uh, like, like Alex does. And so I was curious why now is it now I know that you have been scoring TV shows and movies. I'm going to ask you more about that because most of it's stuff that we don't see over here in the States. But is this an, is this a, uh, a, another extension of that? Is this a COVID thing? What happened? All of the above, really. Okay. I guess, I, I mean, I, I, I've always been a songwriter, something I've enjoyed doing. And when I was a kid, I would write songs for the bands I would play in. But, uh, I kind of, uh, you know, felt we, we all fell into our niches in Blur and my niche was very much playing the drums. So mm -hmm. I've never been unhappy about that, but I've, st I've, I've carried on working on my songwriting from time to time. And um, I guess that, yeah, my film scoring career kind of took off maybe five years ago wasn't something I planned to do I kind of fell into it really but it did mean that you know I've now got a studio 
full of equipment that's uh, good for scoring films with. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of fluent with using all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and the film career gave me co the confidence, really, I think, to to think, well, why don't I, why don't I try and do something with these songs? Mm. I'm right write some songs, think, thoughts, thinking about recording an album. Um, but it's very easy for those kind of things to take a back seat when you've got an actual job that pays you actual money, you know, yeah. and the film scoring thing, it takes up so much time, you know, an unbelievable amount of time. So uh, and there's very you little love time. It, though? I mean, you talked about stumbling into this new thing. It's not like you've been scoring shows for 20 years. It's new. You must love it. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting challenge, most definitely. Yeah. I don't love the way it takes over your life completely, uh -huh. you know. Uh-huh. But uh, it, and it's one of these things where looking back on it, it's very satisfying, but when uh -huh. you're looking at it, it's like, why am I doing this again? What, yeah. what how did I do it? Hang on. Yeah. But yeah. uh, like many things in life are like that, aren't they, really? you know. Uh -huh. That's true, um, especially creative yeah. endeavors. Writers yeah. say that kind of thing a lot. Yeah. So satisfying and challenging, but not necessarily fun, you know what uh -huh. I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's fun to look back on. But, yeah, it gave me really the, co the confidence and the tools to, 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 to think, well, maybe I should, you know, maybe I should try and do a solo record. And I was speaking to um, a friend of mine, Leo Abrams, the producer, and uh, we thought we would like to work together. And it was a vague plan that probably uh -huh. would have never happened in reality. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then along came the first lockdown. Well, I was still working during the first lockdown. I was working on a show called The One for Netflix, and uh, um, they had just finished filming like the day before lockdown was announced, uh -huh. they'd finished filming, you know, so the entire production moved into everyone's spare rooms and kind of, you know, everyone had to figure out how to do that. Sure. sure. And, um, but, uh, so that kind of sustained me through much of the first lockdown, really, you know, if it was, uh, everything went at half speed for a bit, but, uh, you know, other than that, it was, you know, work-wise, it was okay. But, uh, yeah. and we came out of lockdown, and then I got back with Leo and I thought, right, we're now, you know, let's, we've emerged into a brand new world. Let's, uh, let's get this done. And uh, of course we didn't put a date in the diary. And then the second lockdown happened and yeah, it was even worse. In fact, it was, you know, there was no film scoring work there, but, and the, the lot the, 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 I don't know what it was like where you are. I don't know where you are, but uh, I'm in Denver, Colorado. Okay. Well, it was miserable here. Absolutely yeah. miserable. Yeah. The, the world ground to a stop really and yeah. uh, everybody thought we were go, all gonna die i mean it was just going yeah. to oh i know yeah so yeah. anyway leo and i were talking and you know he's a he's got a, a studio at his house and i've got a studio at my house and we thought well, we'll just do some basic preparatory work you know and then at least yeah. when we get out of lockdown we'll put some time aside and we'll finish off the album and about a couple of months later the album was finished yeah it was it was insane. It kind of, it never really, it would turn out to be a very efficient way of working. I think because we're both kind of fluent in how studios work. Sure. So um, otherwise it would have been a lot harder. It was, yeah, very efficient. Not, not the most fun I've ever had recording an album because, you know, it's very quite lonely 
thing to do. Huh. You know, but isn't your film score? I mean, I I hope this isn't too broad of a generalization. I see a very clear thread between your solo work on this new album. It's called Radio Songs, we should say, and the and the music you do for the one and the capture and this sort of. It reminds me of some of the work that Trent Reznor does now with his soundtracks, that sort of electronic, you know, soundscapes. There's some spy yeah. movie slight, you know, themes in yeah. there too. Yeah, so yeah. I'm guessing you're constantly working by yourself these days in a room with drum loops and, you know, synths and stuff like that, making stuff up. I, well, I, I try and not work on my own. It's not, it's uh, not a good place to be really. So I mm. tend to, where I can, I have an assistant and where I can as well, I collaborate on film scores. There's just so much work to do. Uh -huh. uh, I'd, far, I'd, I'd far rather have somebody to bounce ideas off. Okay. So it's unusual for me to actually just be sat there on my own in my okay. studio. Hmm. All right. Not unusual state of affairs. Huh. But uh, I, I mean, I guess the, up, the upside of it all was all the instruments I have in my studio are for doing film scores with, you know, uh -huh. it's the, a rock and roll studio by any stretch of the imagination you know it's got well there's not even a lot of drumming do you even i mean uh, I are you even a drummer drum. anymore well i don't have a drum kit in the studio i don't need one so yeah. you know i what would i do with the drum kit it just takes up space and would never get played so, <laughs> for one of the most noteworthy drummers <laughs> of the 90s to suddenly be like i don't even need a drummer any a drum kit anymore that's kind of shocking <laughs> yeah i suppose i mean i think I'm really a musician first and a drummer second. Ah, really. that makes sense. Okay. I've been, you know, and since I've been playing with since since the early 1980s, you know, yeah. 1970s. Yeah. So um, it's yeah. not like uh, it's not like I, I think of myself as a drummer. I'm the drummer in Blur, but outside Blur. Ah, you're a musician. Got it. That makes sense. I wanted to tell you, I was driving around yesterday with my 10-year-old son, and we yeah. were listening to Tape Measure, the Tape Measure EP, oh, and yes. um, HK Hong Kong came on. Yes. And he was like, will you tell Dave that I love this song? So my son, Eddie, who's 10, wanted me to tell you how much he loved Hong Kong. Well, thank you very much for me. That's very nice to hear. Of course. And I love it, too. And I'm curious, in something I read, probably a press material or something, you were saying that you fell in love with Hong Kong before you'd even 
touchdown before the plane landed. And I thought the magic whip, the last blur album also feels Asian inspired. Maybe it's just in the yeah. graphic art or whatever. What is going on? What is this tie to Asia, specifically Hong Kong with you guys? Well, the, the Hong Kong thing happened on the last blur tour or was it even the blur tour before that? I could just lose track. <laughs> and, uh, we were, we were on tour. It was a long, a long old tour of mostly of festivals. And we were in Hong Kong, having just played a show there. And then the next show in the, in the sequence got canceled. I think we were going to Japan or somewhere else to play another festival, wherever Singapore, maybe wherever it was, the festival collapsed uh, before we got on the plane to, uh, to, to go there. So we, we were kind of stuck in Hong Kong, really. It's too, the next show I think was about a week away. Well, that's not really enough. It's not really worth going home if you've only got a week. Mm. You know, you can't get a plane ticket until a couple of days time usually. Sure. And you go home, then you'd have to get one night in your house and you'd have to get back on a plane and go back to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, we were stuck there for a week. And that would, in that week, we thought, well, let, we could either go sightseeing or, or we could make some music. And we, and we decided to make some music, hired a little studio for that week in a, uh -huh. in a tower block in Hong Kong and spent the week there. And that was where the Magic Whip was, the genesis of the Magic Whip really? Magic was, was written in that studio. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and that's really when I fell in love with Hong Kong on that trip as well. So, huh. but, but the... HK, the, the genesis of that, we went back to Hong Kong afterwards to play a show there um, when the album was released. And I was in the in the hotel room and I read, the radio is a big thing for me. I like to listen to the radio. Um, and, you know, so if you've listened to much European radio, there's a big contrast between European radio and American radio. The American radio is full on, you know, it's uh -huh. kind of, everything's so bang, 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 bang. Yeah. You know, they, they put the, uh, they put the presenters through a special box that takes out all the gaps between the words, don't they? <laughs> yes. It's kind of machine gun delivery yes. of everything. It's, everything's <laughs> got to be no, 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 no. Yes. And, uh, it always takes me by surprise when I go to the States and I hear that. It's like, Christ, where the, how do you breathe? <laughs> but, um, it, my, I was shocked to see that in Hong Kong, the Chinese radio was even more, even more so. And I think really? partially because the uh, the language difference, so it wasn't clear what was going on on the radio. You know, it wasn't. Yeah. Is this? Is this? What, what are they? What are they talking about? You know. Uh -huh. Even more machine gun. Uh -huh. You know, and then a jingle. What are you doing? You know, it's kind of crazy. So. Like, it's really, it really hard to turn that off. It's like bizarre. Yeah. So um, that was the that was the inspiration for HK. Really, I'm recording bits of that off the radio and cutting them okay. up. Some things. In in the end, I didn't really use anything of that. It kind of inspired the track, but actually, the track turned into something much more mellow. And uh, yeah, yeah, and, there's uh, definitely kind of a moody vibe, like a late night, dark yeah. night of the soul. I imagine a guy like sitting in that in a hotel room that has the neon light flashing for the hotel 
right outside the window, you know, what is it like yeah. in a movie? That's what I meant. That's kind of the vibe I get when I listen to your new album. In fact, one of my favorite songs on it is Downtown. I've noticed there are some songs that are that are mostly uh, uh, instrumental, and then there are some that you do sing on. Yeah. Now, I I would I don't know that Dave Roundtree has been known for his voice up to this point. This is not a criticism. You're just you have never had to be a frontman before, and no. so I wondered. Um, if that took some getting used to, to have your voice be front and center on some songs on your new album. Well, it was much, that was what I was wondering as well, to be honest. I was okay. wondering how that was going to work, um, both on the record and live and whether, you know, I've, I sing backing vocals in Blur and always have done, especially Figured on you did. I'm not, uh, you know, it's not like I've never done it. And I've, in when I was younger, I sung fronting vocals, but from the drums in in various bands. But um, uh, yeah, I, I had no idea if it was if if it was going to work, if my voice was going to be up to it, uh, uh, and if I was going to be able to do it live. But it all seemed, you know, once I got over the. Uh, embarrassment of it i guess of hearing my own voice sure. i had a kind of crisis of confidence at the start in the recordings you know where i sort of i almost broke down and said to leo the producer i'm really sorry i, I know my voice is so terrible i don't know what we're going to do it's just a disaster isn't it i don't know, probably should never have even started this uh, you, you really weirdly <laughs> yeah what are you on about but it, it's kind of, I, you know, I, it was. I had to. I had to kind of go from naught to a hundred quite quickly, really. Yeah. And once I sort of relaxed, and I one of my one of my failed lockdown projects was learning to play the trumpet. That was. Oh. Uh, I thought it, that wouldn't it be? I, I was. I've been a trumpet owner for quite a long time. Had <laughs> uh, never really, uh, never really. It. it you know, when I put it to my lips, it actually turned out to be quite hard. So I thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll spend lockdown learning to play the trumpet. <laughs> that still, unfortunately, my trumpet virtuosity still evades. Didn't happen. <laughs> you know, iron, cast iron will. But yeah. when it did 
teach me a lot about was breathing and it it's the ah. same breath control you need for singing as for trumpeting as it turns out yeah so when i realized that thing things got much easier much more quickly i could see that i could see that yeah and then the oh go ahead I know. So before I did the live shows, I actually went to a, a well-known singing teacher over here and, and uh, checked that out with her. And, and uh, you know, that that uh, that's what really got my voice good enough to play the songs good. live. Yeah, it's uh, it's obviously not an overpowering voice. It's almost a little bit of a hesitant voice, but that that hesitancy or um, subtlety fits the vibe of the music. Like I was saying. Um, so you are out there performing live, like this new album and other, I don't know, what do you do? Do you perform blur songs? Do you, do you pull, is it a night mostly of instrumental synth music? What is it? No, it's a band. It's uh, really, it's the full thing. Yeah. Playing the songs on the album. I really? mean, it's a, it's a shortest show. I have to pad it out with some funny stories and, uh, <laughs> and banter. No, uh, cause there's only, 10 songs on the album and one of them is a is a orchestral piece so yeah. uh not really quite at the position where i can afford to take an orchestra out with me right. yet right so, uh, there we play there are nine songs we can play <laughs> i've extended some of them a bit uh -huh. there's, some, there's some bits where uh where things really start to take off when you play them live but yeah even so there's still only half an hour of music so yeah okay uh, music and another half an hour of of, uh, of uh, funny stories and chat. Got it. And no blur stuff. This is, you leave blur on the table. This is separate. No, that would be weird, I think, playing blur songs. Really? That would be, that would be odd. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So, well, that's great. So, is, I mean, did this kind of light a fire in you and there's another solo album already in the works? Like, now that you've done it once, it's going to be easier? <sighs> Well, I've, def I've definitely started on the next one, but uh, I, I very much doubt it'll be easier. Perhaps I'll just be able to approach it with a bit more confidence. And, Maybe. Uh, but uh, it's a it's a hard thing to do writing music from scratch. So I bet. I bet. You know, it, there's a terrible tyranny of a blank page and sat <laughs> sat in front of you. Yeah. You, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, I certainly I want to do. I mean, Blair has kind of got in the way of my plans, but my plan was to do three albums over three years. Okay. And really bash out the touring side as much as I could. So I think that's yeah. the Fun. that's the way that things the things grow in in kind of that'll be great. It's the way the band gets good and the songs get good. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, your songwriting and how difficult it is. I my impression as an outsider who loved Blur throughout was that it started out as more of a band and eventually it became more of a creative outlet for Damon. And then the band wasn't quite enough for, and this is not in any possible way, a critic criticism of Damon, but his, he, his voice, his creativity started to expand. And eventually he just thought, you know what, this is easier if I don't have a band three other guys that I'm married to with me all the time is this. And, and I can go do, you know, what I want to do on the side. Is that similar? Were you a contributor? Did you feel like a contributor to blur in, I don't know, lyrics or sound or anything? Uh, not in lyrics. The lyrics are all Damon's, but uh, yeah, oh, definitely, definitely uh, a contributor. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, 
I, Damon has always had a million different projects on the go. You know, he's, he's, uh, Damon is a songwriting machine. Well, when uh, you and I might go home and put our feet up in front of the TV, you know, and watch uh, at the new Netflix thriller, Damon is in his basement with a guitar writing songs. He writes hundreds and hundreds of songs a month, you know, and that's, you have to, if, yeah. you know, for, 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 for every good song he writes, you have to write half a dozen terrible ones. Yeah. So you have to be able to churn them out. And Damon just, you know, that's what he does. That's why he's so good at it. Yeah. And uh, but it does mean he ends up with a, a, a large number of songs that, you know, he can use for different things. And he's always had, he's always been very, very ambitious and had lots of uh, mm -hmm. different projects on the go, really since the start, to be honest. You yeah. know, Elastica was a project of his, but, you know, all the way along he's, he's, had, he's had multiple projects on the go. Yeah. So, but I think, I think that, I think with Blur, I think all his other projects kind of evolve over time. Now, you look at Gorillas now, it's a different oh, lineup, different people. Yeah. Blur is the same, it's always been the same four people. And, uh, you know, that, that is difficult to do over a few decades, to spend decades with the same people in very close quarters, day in, yeah. day out, often seven days a week when you're on tour. That's a tough thing to do. So really, I think we all just needed a break from it. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So I don't think any of us could deal with it if that was going to be the kind of main focus of our lives going forward. I think that would have been problematic for everybody. That's you know, interesting. It was starting to, it was starting to affect people, in the in you know affect people's mental health really. Yeah, that, yeah. That. It's interesting you say that because that's probably the main thing that I've learned in, as I said, the eight years of having this podcast and talking with so many people like you, is that I approached it originally as a music fan, as an outsider who just can't imagine a life better than being <laughs> a rock star. That seems like the greatest life of all time. And then after talking to over 400 or 500 people like you, you realize that's not, that's not really it. Um, some of it's great. The creative part is wonderful, but having to be stuck or, you know, ball and chain to these, these other guys that I like, but I don't want around me all the time sucks sometimes. It's difficult. It's no accident. I think that, you know, people go out to work and then come home again in the evening, but that's what, you know, and there must be many jobs like that. It must be a bit like being in the army maybe or something where you're just in a small Probably. unit or on a ship, you know, in the Navy, you're a small unit and you're just together all the time. You're relying on each other all the time. Uh -huh. You know, it's a, that, that's a great feeling in the short term. So that's a great feeling full stop. But it, it, it is difficult to sustain that over decades. Most bands don't last decades, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Most bands are, have a few records and then they're gone. And, and, and the, the, ones that, the ones that do last the, last the distance, they have to figure out a way of coping with that if they want to last the distance. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a shame. You know, obviously, Oasis great example because you know they were brothers to start with I mean, you imagine the 
you know, by the time they got to be in the band together, they were already kind of 20, 25 years of <laughs> sick, to, sick of each yeah. other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, God, imagine they managed to keep it together for as long as they did, really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what is this? I mean, I have to ask, you probably get asked this every day. What's this? What's the state of blur? My outsider impression is that no one hates each other and they'll re you guys would reform when you feel like it. You're one of the biggest bands in the year for of the, in the world for a while there. So we don't yeah. need the money. If we did, we'd reform, we'd do a reunion tour and it'd be great. Then we go back and do our own things. And that's great too. Yeah. That's about, that's about the size of it. Really. We, we, okay. we still like each other, yeah. you know, we kind of, we no, we don't need there's nothing really to prove to anyone. And we certainly don't want to repeat ourselves. So, yeah. you know, to, to get to get everyone's interest people have to come up with the interesting ideas these days you know it's, yeah. we got off, offered all kinds of things all the time and most sure. of them we just say thanks but no thanks but uh, yeah from time to time somebody will come up with an interesting idea and the, the first one that got us back out back out together was in 2009 which was the start of what's now called British summertime a series of festivals in Hyde Park in the middle of London and so the organizers were trying were, were had this idea to, to put that on and ask us if we wanted to headline the first one we said sure so it's like a like a home gig the next one was the Olympics in London in 2012 we got a phone call would you like to headline the party at the end of the Olympics you can't say no to that can you no <laughs> no you know, so each time somebody has come up with an interesting idea, it's kind of galvanized our uh, imagination to some extent, you know, and, and uh, so this time, of course, it's Wembley Stadium. We played everywhere, everywhere you can play, really, you know, like Glastonbury, we've done Madison Square Garden, you know, yeah. all, all the Khan in Tokyo, all of these things, uh, yeah. these kind of iconic places that you sort of dream about as a young musician, you know, you see it on the, on the, album sleeve recorded live at Madison Square Garden. Of course. What even is that? It's like, <laughs> is it like a garden? What is it? Well, you know. Yes, I know. So <laughs> and, I got to uh, tell you. Oh, go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, yeah. So no, was Wembley was one of those. Wembley Stadium. Yeah. You sort of dream about walking on stage going, hello, Wembley. Yes. You hear it on the, or you see it on the TV and you yeah. hear about and there's an ocean of people loving and cheering for you. So I've only been able to see Blur once. And it yeah. was kind of the polar opposite of all the big shows you're talking about right now. It would have been, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. And um, I went to college out there. And this would have been in 95, 96, the summer in Salt Lake City. It, you were promoting the self-titled album. And um, you were headlining this all-day festival called the Big Ass Show or the Big Bash. Oh, okay. And um, it was during the day, and it was in a field, basically, or like a park. And um, I just remember, and the crowd weren't didn't feel like Blur fans to, like I was. And it just felt like one of those things where nobody really wants to be there. You know what I mean? Or it's kind of like, what are we doing in Salt Lake City? And the crowd is like, who are these guys? And uh, do you have any recollection of this? No, I must have, must have blotted that one out. You see, I always tell people I've never been to Salt Lake City because it's on my bucket list. I'd love to go oh, really? to Utah, Salt Why? Lake City. It's just, I, 
the I think the landscape is so amazing with those massive salt yeah. lake. The 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 Mormon church I find absolutely fascinating. I just you know the the whole story about it I just think is absolutely fascinating. Um, this is surreal. <laughs> I'm your man, then, Dave, for this kind of stuff. <laughs> I've, yeah, my girlfriend and I have been planning a trip to Salt Lake City for quite some time, and it's got 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 to, it got to knocked back through COVID a couple of times. But I'd love to go down there. I mean, do you ski yeah. by any chance? She does. I don't. But okay, uh, okay. Yeah. But I know. Is this the same? I, I America is such a great you know there's so many places in america that are on my bucket list you uh -huh. know the, uh -huh. the, the, it's wow. such a rich and varied country there's so many things to do i'm very jealous of americans for having america it's like <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> oh that's funny some of us angliophiles are jealous of you <laughs> so. everybody wants all they don't have don't they? basically yeah that's it yeah that was the one time i saw blur and it was great but it was it was just you could fit you could just tell and it was the end of a long hot day and in fact right before you was um cake the band cake oh, and yeah. I've seen the band Cake twice, and both times someone threw something on stage, and the lead singer got mad and stormed off. And um, <laughs> he did it right before you. So maybe that led to some of it, because there was this, like, is he coming back? We don't know. Should Blur start now if he doesn't come back? Because, Or should we wait and have Blur start at the normal time? Anyway, it was kind of a weird night. So you have been to Salt Lake before, but you probably it was all a blur. You probably don't remember. Hey, there we are. There we go. What year was that? Can you remember? Like I said, it would have been the summer of '95 or '96. One of those, I'm guessing, because that's when that's when the self-titled came out, right? Didn't that come out in '95? Yeah, I'm sure you're right. I never know what years anything I, is. I'm so. not very good at years, but it was. It would have been August, September ish of '95 or '96. I'm gonna go with '96. Yeah. We had some long American tours in those days, so yeah, it's kind yeah. of it's it's odd the things that do stick in the memory. You know, if if something something jogs my memory about those shows, then I'll I'll remember it. You know, sure, sure. But the things I remember are just little, it, you know, the things that really kind of stick out in my memory when I think about those days is like the small things. Really, I remember we were driving through Colorado and. Uh, you could see Denver off in the distance, and there was a twister, a massive great twister in the sky. <laughs> over really? Yeah, it looked like it was over Denver. But, uh, yeah. probably, but, uh, wow. Having passed out thinking, wow, this is like an American scene, isn't it? This is like, yeah. what? <laughs> That's it, <laughs> right? Thundercloud as well. There was lightning and this twister. It was just like surreal. That is wild. Yeah, Colorado will do that. When you guys reform and come back together, do you is there is coming to the states ever even in the cards? Yeah, yeah. And so last time, last time we did a tour, we were, that was when we played Madison Square Garden. Oh, okay. I didn't know if that was earlier. Okay, list, I think. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. But yeah, but it's kind of you know we ne we we never we never really made much of an impact. In America, as a band, you know, yeah. outside the cities, you know, you know, New York and LA and uh, and uh, Boston, obviously, and the kind of college towns and stuff, where we were sort of we were underground, mm -hmm. but we never. I think you know, we had some, we had a couple of bona fide hits, 
song two and there's no other one. Yeah. People, I think many people in America have no idea that they're the same band. No, they don't. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yep. so, people have really joined the dots up. So, yeah, we, we never really, if you're going to do America, you've got to do America. It's kind yeah. of, uh, you disappoint a lot of people. You just fly in and do New York and go home. You just piss a lot of people off. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah. Next time you you guys do this, put Denver on your itinerary so that I can come <laughs> see you. Um I, uh, as a big fan of yours, can I throw some songs at you that I'm curious yeah. if you remember the making of them or anything? Um, yeah. For whatever reason, getting to start getting ready to talk to you, I've always loved the song Sing, but that was the song that I just kept playing on repeat for like an hour yesterday. That song to me sounds like, guys, first of all, it's just one of the greatest bass. I'll just listen to that song and sing along to Alex's bass lines on that <laughs> whole thing. It sounds like a train kind of, you know, going down the track. It sounds yeah. also like a jam, like you guys are just playing <clears throat> along to a groove. You and Alex have, are in the pocket and you've come up with a groove and everyone else is going to figure it out. Where did Sing come from? Well, I remember where we did it. There's a, there used to be, I think there may still be a, a recording studio underneath the Roundhouse in Camden, which is a big, uh, well, which is a very famous venue in Camden. It used to be an old train shed. And uh, we were in there. And I can't remember, I, I don't remember much about what, where the song came from and kind of figuring it out, but we were recording it in there. And uh, we were... We knew we wanted the drums to be just relentless. That's it. And it's like, if you want to be relentless for three and a half minutes, it's, that's a very hard thing to do, you know. It's kind of, so in the end, we yeah. had loads of takes, and I, the, it, was, it would just be very obvious, the kind of subtle changes in volume between the, you know, it's only a snare drum and a cymbal, but going, uh -huh. hitting that really hard. <laughs> It's very hard to keep it very absolutely constant, you know, and kind of pounding. So in the end, we got a very early sampler um, that the uh, the old uh, echo machines you used to be able to use as samplers, and you could just sample something in about half a second long. Uh -huh. So I just went 
bang once we put it in this echo machine and then just set it going ding, 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 ding. so i have exactly half a second of input on <laughs> and uh yeah that, I, I know what you mean about alex i mean it, he's uh in many songs alex plays the tune it's funny that's I've never true. known a band like that. I did, yeah. Other than Peter Hook, a little bit New Order. Yeah, Peter Hook, and then a, a lot of uh, kind of Motown records. That's true. Yes. Well. Jim Jim Jamerson. Yeah. Yeah, in the kind of indie genre, it's not, it's yeah. not normally the bass player plays some root notes yeah. and kind of. Oh, Alex is very lyrical, a bit wasted right. on the. But, uh, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, I I, uh, I had Stephen Street on here a couple of months ago, and um, that also was a huge honor. I just love him and so much of his work. One thing that one of the takeaways I was asked, we were in, we were talking about all the different bands he's worked with, and of course we talked about Blur. And I was asking him if he knew, you know, if he had any concept what a what a transformative album Park Life would end up being. And he said, no, <laughs> so funny. He said, no, but I got to be honest, I was so sick of that song by the time we were done. <laughs> Bless his heart, you know? Confidence is a preference for the habitual voyeur of what is known as. A morning suit can be avoided if you take a route straight through what is known as. John's got Brewer's fruit, he gets intimidated by the dirty pigeons. They love a bit of him. Who's that gut lord marching? You should cut down on your pork life, mate. Get some exercise. Except on Wednesdays when I get rudely awakened by the dustman. I put my trousers on, have a cup of tea, and I think about leaving the house. I feed the pigeons, I sometimes feed the sparrows too. It gives me a sense of enormous well-being. And then I'm happy for the rest of the day. Safe in the knowledge there will always be a bit of... And I wonder what that period was like for you. Um, you mentioned that Damon's coming in with the lyrics. I mean, did you did you realize that you were creating one of the most uniquely British statements on British life, like something the kinks or madness would have come up with, you know? Yeah, that was the plan, really. Really? Yeah, yeah. it was... Uh... You know that was what we were talking about, and you know, it's, it's a journey that it turns out many musicians have been on. But you know, wondering what actual English music sounds like. You know, the music is so so uh, full of cross fertilization from all kinds of other styles and genres and countries, and things are kind of intermingled. You know, and the pop music itself is a de derived from kind of blues and jazz and all of that, isn't it? So the, even the genre itself is kind of, you know, it's an interesting story where it comes from to start with. And we were sort of, what is, what, what is English pop music? What does that sound like? And that was the kind of journey we went on really. You know, once we, 
once we'd done that a bit, we moved on. That was only really that album and the next yeah. one, I think, that, we, that, uh, that uh, you know. Explored that. Wasn't it called the Life Trilogy or something like that? Yeah, Modern the, Life is Rubbish, this, and then Great Escape. Yeah. So, yeah, the, by the end of The Great Escape, I think The Great Escape probably, if we had our time over, we probably would have abandoned the English music thing by The Great Escape. I think we pretty much had. It's not really that similar to the previous two albums. None of those albums are very similar to each other, to be honest. I agree. I just read they were meant to be a trilogy. Yeah. And so, yeah. No, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was never designed as a trilogy in any way. It just kind of worked out that way. Yeah. And it, I think after after the Great Escape, we took quite a quite a conceptual leap sideways. My question was: Did you know going in that you did you set out to make one of the most defining British statements and you in music and you did and it, and it, you achieved it? We did on every we do on every single. You know, I, yes. I can never believe that every song we do ever isn't a single, and not only it's, isn't a single, isn't number one. They all sound yeah. like singles to me. Yeah, you know what I mean? we were so ambitious in those, but we were endlessly ambitious. We were annoyingly ambitious. <laughs> you know, we wanted to be huge. We wanted to be the biggest band on the planet. Well, you so, were, or close second, briefly. For yeah. a, a microsecond, we got our fifteen minutes anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, it, you know, we had, we were we had very very grandiose plans, but you never know how these things are going to be received. And you know, as much as anything, we were lucky with the reception that that uh, album got. It, it was certainly a great album, and it had five or six potential singles on it. Mm-hmm. But also, it was the time was right for you know people were yeah, a bit, it was. That's it. What was going on in in mainstream music? Yeah. And, uh, before that album, we were a tiny little indie band, and the indie bands had their own chart because they were so unlikely to get into the main chart, you know. Yeah. And after that album, between us and Oasis, we flipped that on its head, and suddenly we were the mainstream music, and uh, you know, right. we, we were in the main charts, and that that was almost a funny almost like a joke idea before then, you know, nobody uh-huh. would have, a couple of years earlier, nobody would have taken that idea seriously. In fact, there was a column in one of the music papers mocking bands like us, you know, <laughs> saying that, uh, you know, the gag being, you know, we the, 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 the drummer has got a string of polo ponies, you know, and uh-huh. was, you know, because the idea that the drummer would have a string of polo ponies, which I do now. <laughs> They're just out there, and you can't see them. Really? Are you being serious? <laughs> oh, I thought he was, folks. <laughs> that would be wonderful. But uh, the idea be. that you know the drummer might be the the, the, the drummer of Blur might be rich and have polo ponies was a funny joke. You know, it was so ridiculous the idea. Yeah. Well, it's a bit ridiculous. Well, but, I was going to ask you about this, and I have more songs I want to throw at you, but yeah. I, one of my questions was, how does one achieve biggest band in the world status? And, and Because it wasn't Cast, it wasn't Gene, it wasn't The Verve, it wasn't Ether, it wasn't all the other Britpop bands that I fell in love with at that time, it was you. And I wonder if what you just mentioned a minute ago about timing, if it was the music you made, that... Releasing this album that is so, like we said, such a unique statement on British life at that time, at the same time as another band who's doing something similar, Oasis, 
that those two things help each other. They, uh, there's, you know, it's, what is it like two things to put together are not twice as strong as one. They're four times as strong. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, you're, uh, you were the two things that, uh, that managed to kind of catapult everyone else behind you. Yeah. I think that's right. And, you know, the time was right because people were looking for the next thing. You know, that, that was very much how the music business operated in those days. Anyway, it was all about the next big thing. And it was clear that the, the, the records that were being released weren't the net going to be the next big thing. You know, they were, they, they were the kind of tail end of what ended up being some rather guitar, dull sort of guitar rock that started off with Nirvana and was incredibly exciting. And by the end of it, it was lots of bands playing oh. music and very similar, right. wearing the same kind of check shirts. And it was just kind of, yeah, it looked like it was tired and going nowhere. Yeah. So the, yeah. The music, the music in those days, there used to be three um, broadsheet music newspapers in the UK. You know, each with about twenty pages, desperate for things to write about. And um, I was, I was a devout Q, Q magazine disciple. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that was that was the kind of higher end. That was like the Observer to Melody yeah. uh, Makers, The Sun, but it was. Uh, it, we were both us and Oasis were quite loud mouthed kind of quite good copy. You know, we both liked to slag everybody else off and kind of, you know, so uh, the, the music paper sort of latched onto us and, uh, you know, there were, there's always a hundred thousand bands going on at any one time in the UK, apparently. And, you know, they managed to find five or 10 of those that would kind of vaguely had potentially had something in common and, you know, invented a scene. And then yeah. that's fine. Right about, you know, you're all, you're all, uh, seen to be doing something in common. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the, that makes it, you know, you can put three bands on the front cover then that nobody's ever heard of because it's a scene, you know, you yeah. should have heard of three bands, you know, it's your fault. Yes. So that, that was the way the music industry worked in those days. And I think, but why us and not cast and not Gene? Because of the songs, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Damon is such a great songwriter, always has been, always will be. And fundamentally, if you get the songs right, in my experience, everything else falls quite naturally. That's probably play. true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, you, are you probably anything like that right and you've probably been asked this a million times my understanding is that there wasn't a true like heated hated rivalry between you and oasis behind the scenes maybe a, a healthy competition you know spirit of competition but not like hatred or anything is that right well it started off good natured in the middle it wasn't very good natured you know and then it ended yeah. up good natured again yeah you know yeah. we were all friends fairly shortly afterwards again okay but um yeah. Yeah, I mean, we enjoyed telling the music papers that all other bands were shit. They enjoyed telling the music papers that all other bands were shit. Yeah. Yeah. So inevitably, when the focus turned, turned on just the two of our bands, and uh -huh. it was spurred on, there was an incident happened, which I only found out about much later, that an uh -huh. incident happened between Liam and Damon uh, that... Uh, that kind of infuriated them both to do with a woman. I won't say any more. Oh boy. That. Oh boy. There was, there was woman trouble. Uh -huh. so that, uh -huh. that, that was the spark that lit the tinder of the, of the thing. Okay. 
And then we decided to release our single on the same day as theirs. They moved and you their, won. They moved their single, and then we moved ours again back onto the same day, <laughs> and it was on. Yes. And, and Country House that, outsold, some might say, right? Uh, roll with it, but yes. Or roll was, with uh, it, yes, 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 yeah. Yes. I, I, who knows? I mean, who knows? <laughs> you know, I know both of our record companies were out there buying copies like there was no tomorrow. So who knows who actually sold more than what? But uh, it was uh, it was great for both bands. Put you know, we both ended up at the sort of bottom rung of the top ladder as a result of all of that publicity. Yeah, yeah, it worked. It worked. Um, okay, I want to throw another song at you. Okay. Um, I go. Uh, my two favorite Blur songs. It goes back and forth. This is a low. Is one of them because that just when you're depressed or you're feeling it for somebody, that song speaks right to the heart. Do you remember anything about the recording of This Is a Low? Nothing at all, I'm afraid. Really? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. I don't remember how we recorded it. I have no memory of that whatsoever. Okay. Okay. The other one is Tender. Someone 
Which, uh, yeah. I love that one, and it's funny, I was driving my other son, who's 13, somewhere last night, and we were listening to Tender, and Tender's one of my favorite songs to sing in the car, and, and it, I was trying to get him to sing with me, but he's too cool to sing with me, so he wouldn't do it, but I was like, look, it just goes kind of round and round and round, it doesn't really change, it's just this cycle, you can join it at any, he's like, I don't know the words, I said, you, they're easy, come on, <laughs> it, it doesn't stay, it doesn't change. That could have been another song that you would have just played something and then it got sampled for the rest of the song because it didn't change. <laughs> no, I remember that one. The, the, that was two songs nailed together, really. Really? And Graham came up with the chorus for, for, I think, for different ideas and the two kind of got stapled together. And yeah, I, I, I certainly remember my part in it. Yeah, I remember the, the writing of it. And, uh, oh. Playing a, I was trying to do a whole bunch of different things at once, playing different instruments and and as as well as the drums and hitting things, and it was all kind of going disastrously wrong. So in the end, I just picked up the things I was trying to hit and played the drums with those, and it uh, sounded really good. It <laughs> so, did. I loved it. That's why that it sounds a little different. Okay. Playing with drumsticks, I just play with a tambourine and a maraca yeah. or something. You know. Yeah. Okay. Thirteen. That album was William Orbit, right? That wasn't a Stephen Street album. What made you move from Stephen to William? And whose idea was it to include like a gospel choir in that song? Because it's the perfect accent. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't really know why we moved from Stephen to William. It just kind of seemed to happen, really. Mm. And I think Stephen is still quite upset about it. So <laughs> I probably would have been if I was him. Yeah, he we was learn, kind of surprised. Yeah, I mean, we learned a different way of recording with William. Mm -hmm. William isn't, uh, Stephen is quite methodical. You know, he'll have a whiteboard, he'll put a, mm -hmm. he'll put a spreadsheet on it, you know, a, a matrix, and he'll fill in things in the matrix. <laughs> William is all about the kind of what happens in the moment. You know, he uh -huh. tries to capture little moments and then put them together to, to, to turn them into yeah. song. And so we we kind of, we'd never really worked in that way. And we always, you know, our experience had been that you can end up, you know, this sort of jamming approach to things can, can make, mean you spend an awful lot of time and achieve very, very little, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, so William was a bit more structured than just, come on, guys, let's get, pick up the instruments and see what happens. It was a bit more structured than that. But uh, yeah. and we've, we've made albums since like that, that the Magic Whip was made kind of like that. Mm -hmm. but yeah, so it's important to have, if you're jamming, it's important to be working towards something rather than just playing and hoping that genius will spill out through the instrument. Yeah. It's yeah. all not about and it won't. Speaking of Magic Whip, Thought I Was a Spaceman is one of my favorite latter-day songs of yours as well.
A lot of that goes to Graham because the guitar work on that is really fuzzy and awesome. Um, you were mentioned when you were, I wasn't mentally prepared for that earlier. That album could, I mean, was it just that week in Hong Kong that, that inspired the album or did you come up with ideas in that week that you were there that led to completed songs? Yeah, we, we, uh, that was the, another album that we made in the kind of orbit way. So uh, yeah, we spent a week, the whole week you know all, all day every day in the studio playing 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 and then uh brought it all back to england gave it all to Stephen, and he kind of started sorting it all out and then we kind of patched up things okay and Stephen put it put things into order you know and kind of did the editing job and then we went back in and sort of patched up things that hadn't worked properly in the edit you know redid some parts and added some more things on top okay Damon put his vocal. Damon went back to then went back to Hong Kong because uh, he hadn't written any vocals and uh, he vocals thought, sound better in Hong Kong than they do somewhere somewhere else. He wanted it to be sort of genuine to have authenticity to be genuinely yeah. inspired by the Hong Kong thing. Yeah. The music, yeah. been, you know, the music what sounded like it did because of the environment we were, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we were making it in, and so uh, he wanted the same to be true for the vocals. So uh, he went back to Hong Kong and 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 wrote the vocals over a weekend, and then came back to London and sang them. <laughs> no way! Well, you can do that when you are so big. Does um, have you been back to Hong Kong? I wanted to ask you about that. No, no not. I mean, yeah. So we went back to play a show there. Yeah, um, last tour, but uh, yeah, haven't back since. Haven't been back since. You should get you a little flat. In Hong Kong or something in a high rise, and just they really are little the flats. I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I say, yeah, yeah, see what kind of music comes out of that for you. Okay, last one. Um, yeah. Jets off of Think Tank is one of the weirdest things I've ever heard, and I love it. It can just go on for hours.
And that's another song where Alex's bass is kind of driving the whole thing, I think. Do you remember anything about that? Was it was that just studio trickery that Damon thought was interesting? Where did that come from? That was a so we had a kind of Friday night club when we were making that album. And so we would we would do sensible work kind of in the daytime. Uh, and we work quite sensible hours, really. You know, it's, I think it's uh-huh. no that most people work sort of nine to five-ish because they're the hours in which you get most things done, really. So we tend to do that, get in reasonably early and stop reasonably early. But we kind of, that that evolved for one reason or another that what evolved into a kind of after school club on Fridays where we would where we would hang around and just do sort of crazy shit really mm-hmm. so that was a kind of jam that evolved out of the kind of Friday night after school club and uh, Mike Smith who's uh, the musical director of live he he's also he's a his first instrument is saxophone and he's a, he's a, loves jazz and we were play little jazz things with Mike and you know so we were doing this track and he had been in the studio for some reason or another playing saxophone on something and uh, he just had this idea of sort of quoting as they call it in the jazz music circles lots of really classic mm-hmm. jazz saxophone riffs and so he just started doing it and he's got this intensely annoying musicality where you can play almost anything and just make it sound effortlessly brilliant and so he just started you know we had this kind of rather weird jam that's all quite spaced out and was going nowhere and he just put this sax solo over the top and it just the whole thing just suddenly made sense it was yes. and he every note was right in the pocket and the whole yes. thing is as he played it he says hang on i've got an idea he walked in the studio played that no way start to finish and then walked out and we we're all like what how do you do that, how do you do that? wow, wow. <laughs> there was a bit of polishing to be done after that you know but that was you know we do we had a lot of fun on those friday night clubs we made some we made some sensible music and some that's great i believe it <laughs> i believe it yeah it's wild but it's it's i mean weird but i love it would you have ever guessed that song two would be the anthem that it is today? No, it, I, we knew it was good when we did it, and it's one of those things that just ha- just seemed to happen, you know. Yeah. 
you know, when you're playing tennis and suddenly your racket seems that big and the balls seem huge and everything's moving in slow motion. And <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, yes. It was like that. It was the musical equivalent of that. Everybody's ideas were great and worked first time. Uh-huh. The whole thing just kind of came together from from inception to finishing the recording in an afternoon, really. Uh-huh. Wow. It was done. And, you know, later on, we tried to patch up some of the things that were a bit scrappy, and it's, they sounded much worse. So we just wow. left the scrappiness in, you know, including yeah. Damon vocal, most of most of what's when damon does a vocal when he hasn't written the lyrics which is most of the time he'll just do a rough guide vocal where he'll go ah, but she did sound a boo boo uh-huh. you know kind of scat singing really uh-huh. but it's quite a it's quite a thing because he uses like english sounding syllables and makes yeah. english nonsense words which often inspire his actual lyrics so he just went doo 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 as the as the verses for song two and then when he came, he actually wrote some lyrics and came back to try and sing it. And it sounded terrible. It sounded awful. So we just left the zabba dabba doing, you know. So, so that doesn't really have any lyrics. I think he kind of tidied a few words up to make right. it sound out something. But actually, it's just kind of, it's just sort of, you know, streaming <laughs> stuff from the kind of dark recesses of Damon's brain. That is so funny because I've only ever been able to make out every like third word. And yeah. I think I know what's, what he's saying, but I don't, I'm not 100% sure. And I was thinking, yeah. am I the idiot? Does everyone else know what he's saying? And I'm the one who can't figure it out. Um, okay, I got to ask you one thing about your scoring work. I didn't realize until getting yeah. ready to talk to you that you did the score for that Bross documentary. Yeah. Dude, would, you, would you have ever guessed that Dave Roundtree, the drummer for Blur, would have a song on his CV called The End of Bross? question mark but you knew you know how did you get that job <laughs> i got that job through the director joe perman who um they when they they were gonna the the original idea for the bros film was bros were going to get back together to to do a world tour which uh, uh you know and they hadn't played together or even really spoken for decades you know uh-huh. and they were gonna get back together shake hands make up go into rehearsals and then do a world tour. And of course that, uh, that uh, idea lasted about five minutes. So they they going to film, they'd, they'd agreed with this production company to film this, the, you know, the reunion, the rehearsals and the show. And originally they thought it was going to be a bit like a sort of puff documentary, you know, mm-hmm. 
the kind of narrator going, and uh, now the brothers have finally hugged and made up, and everything is wonderful. And now, look, they're walking on stage, and the grand got one. But actually, what really happened was that you know the facade lasted for a day or two, and then suddenly, all of the old you know, animosity crept back in and the thing yeah. very nearly didn't happen at all. And that, you know, the film is about these two quite damaged individuals trying to figure out how to coexist, you know, figure out whether it's possible to save their relationship. You know, yeah. quite, quite, quite big stuff, but they're both very eccentric characters. And so, the thing, so the, anyway, the, the original director went home because he said, I, I, you know, this is a rather different film than, than I was <laughs> expecting to make. Could somebody else take over? So right. my friend Joe, who I'd worked on other projects with in the past, uh, got the gig. And so anyway, he went over and finished the filming and came back and rang me up and said, you've got to see, you've got to see what I've got. Oh. So I went, to, I went to the edit with him and I was just gobsmacked. Yes. And there's there's loads more, even even more eccentric that didn't make it into the film. I tell really? you, there, that was. I believe it. it. I mean, my God. So um, I just right. loved it. You know, the two the two are for both intentionally and unintentionally hilarious. Yes, they are. You know, yes. Stitches. <laughs> In this, in the edit, this edit suite with the, you know the poor editor looking at us, going, "What's wrong with you two? Yes. <laughs> rolling, clutching our eyes with laughter. Yes. And so he said, "You've got to, do, you've got to do this with me." So I said, "Oh, you're absolutely right. I do." <laughs> I loved that that documentary. I, I'm not a huge Bross fan, but that show was fascinating and fascinatingly awkward and uncomfortable to watch for anyone yeah. who doesn't know it's called after the screaming stops and it is so good okay cool so what happens the, oh what go ahead that really because you know up until that point i hadn't done any i'd done a, a fair few c composing jobs but only on small things you know yeah. i've done an episode of this show here and a sports documentary there and you know that that and that film was released really nothing really happened when it was released but then it was re-released the following year and it just exploded everybody everybody saw it oh, one christmas you know it was one of those films that everybody yeah. had watched it and just everybody was talking about and that yeah. kind of suddenly my phone started ringing with offers of work and you know that was the start of my yeah kind of successful film scoring career really Crazy. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, it didn't make a dent over here until it was streaming. And I think it was streaming on Prime, if I remember right, or something. And I was seeing all this response from, as I mentioned, I love the UK, obviously. And so I'm seeing all this response to the movie on social media over there. And when I see that it's free for me, I, I'm just, and I can't, I, I can't believe what I'm watching. These two guys in this movie is just crazy. So I was going to ask them, so what's the fate? I mean, does like tape measure get played on the radio? Do you... You know, other than these shows, are you getting to be heard? What's going to happen? Yeah, it's a, it's a new project, so but things are things are going well. It's being supported on the on the six music over here. They're good. The tracks that I've released, and I just got to grow the project. You know, is I want to do a lot of touring. I want to get it to a stage where the touring is self-sustaining and then just tour it a lot because, you know, that's what we did with Blur. That's yeah. how things grow. That's how uh, the band gets good. You know, that's how the, 
the 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 songwriting grows so you know that that's the plan really to tour it and to tour it a lot okay um uh, before it oh what the blur thing has kind of got in the way of that slightly unfortunately it's a it's a user this summer but uh okay know. so you've you've I feel like you just kind of buried the lead. You've mentioned this a couple of times, and I didn't want to presume. Is Blur coming back for some shows this summer? Is that it? Yes, we're doing the, the Wembley Stadium. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. wow. And some festivals associated with, you know, some festivals around that. So, okay. Yeah. What a life, man. Good for you, Dave. <laughs> you, yeah. you deserve this. Now, before I let you go, I feel like I a large part of your life for the last couple of decades has been into politics. And I wanted yeah. you to be able to kind of explain to us just something that some of the things that you fight for and feel strongly about because you and I are aligned politically. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a kind of left of center person, not as left of center as I was when I was in my twenties, but still uh, yeah. left of center of the general population, I think. And uh, so my work is with the Labour party in the UK, but I'm a, I'm a grassroots campaigner, really, you know, my, what I enjoy doing and what I find most um, satisfying is, you know, working in the community, knocking on people's doors, checking they're okay, offering help. That's what being a politician at its very basic level is really, and that's what's the most satisfying about it. I've also helped set up and run a, uh, so I guess it's a trade union for, for uh, pop musicians, um, I did that around the time uh, we started it around the time when uh, uh, MP3s were uh, the the industry said MP3s were about to destroy the industry and everybody in it. And we thought, no, it's not. It's, it's going to it's simply going to change the way people consume music. And we thought, well, this time round, when the change happens, we want to be in the driving seat or at least at the table rather than being the also rounds, which are the 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 musicians usually are so uh club together with a bunch of people including ed o'brien from radiohead and sandy shaw and loads of other british musicians uk-based musicians and uh, and that's still going strong and you know we're we're now uh, we're now kind of giving evidence at government uh government uh, uh inquiries into the music industry and things like that and we're a kind of trusted voice now in the industry it's very gratifying we weren't for a long time we were kind of crazy when we set it up. We yeah. did a lot of shouting. So, I believe uh, it. Well, sometimes you have to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that that I've also became a criminal lawyer and was uh, very active in the fight. To, we have a, a public defender service, nationwide public defender service here, mm. which is under threat um, and has been for many years. So, I was very active in the campaign to keep that. I think it's vitally important that people are properly represented in the courts. Yeah. Because uh, well, no, that could be us. I mean, most yeah. people wouldn't break the law, but anyone could be uh, wrongly arrested and accused of breaking the law. And I've certainly seen many of people, many of those people. Yeah, they were uh, out of purely self-interest. I want to, uh, <laughs> I want to make sure there's a public defender system there if I ever need it. Good, good. Um, well done. Okay, last question. Uh, yeah. You, I'm guessing, in all of this, you've interacted with a musical hero you may have even become friends with some of your musical heroes. Tell me a story about anything. Tell me about a story about hanging out with David Bowie or whatever your, whatever the key right, story for you is. So we were in, we played in Atlanta, Georgia, 
And uh, there's maybe, maybe there's another Atlanta, but uh, no idea. Oh, no. But, uh, it's an Atlantis. <laughs> but anyway, we were playing Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, we were playing in this club, and David Bowie is playing in the Enormo Dome next door. Uh. And uh, so we were on relatively early, and he was on relatively late. Mm. So we played our we played our gig, and uh, went back to the dressing room, and David Bowie was standing there saying. That's a great gig. I really enjoyed it. So it engaged us all in conversation. It was an utterly charming guy. And he, I was having a chat with him. And uh, on tour, books are very important on tour. You know, of ways of passing the time when you're traveling are very important. And so you're always looking for book recommendations. So I happened to be clutching a book. He was clutching a book. So we swapped books. No way. <laughs> yeah. I gave him a book on phosphorus. It's called something like The Secret History of Phosphorus or something like a very interesting book. Uh-huh. It's about phosphorus is a chemical element that people in ancient times thought it was the philosopher's stone, the thing that was going to turn base metal into gold. And so uh, the history of phos- phosphorus is all it is to do is tied up with the history of human greed and the kind wow. of book money and all of that. So a very interesting book. doesn't sound it from the title, but uh, no, anyway. It sounds like it. David was kind enough to give me his book, the book he was reading, and he was kind enough to sign it for me. Oh. I'm going to ask, where is, where is yes, this book? Yes, that's my next question. I have absolutely no idea. What? Dave? No. <laughs> I know. I know. It's somewhere along the line. This was kind of 20 years ago. Somewhere along the line, the book didn't uh, arrive when I moved house or uh, fell out of the bottom of my bag on tour. No. So, yeah. What book he, was it? Yeah, I don't remember. He mentioned oh, it. Man. He was kind enough to mention the conversation we'd had on his on his blog, though. He used to write a blog. Okay, uh-huh, uh-huh. So, uh, that, was, that was good enough for me, meeting one of your heroes and him uh-huh. mentioning that he'd met you in his yeah. blog. Okay. That'll do. That'll do. Uh, Dave, if you can't tell, I love you a lot. And I love so much of all the good stuff you put in the world, whether it be Blur, your solo stuff, whatever. I love it, and I'm so grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Dave Roundtree. You guys, check out Radio Songs. I was hoping to get some free copies to give away. I wasn't able to make that happen, unfortunately. But it is out there streaming now. It just came out last week. He mentioned a few minutes ago one of the songs on the album, or I did, I think, called Tape Measure. And I really like this track. So let's close it out with tape measure. Um, check it out. And if you, I mean, listen to Blur, get excited to see Blur in concert. If you're in the UK, I'm sure Dave's not going to come here. I wish he would go see Dave in concert. It's going to be a blast. By the way, there was kind of a, cl- I meant to mention this in the beginning. There's oftentimes a, a clicking noise that was going on in here. That was him playing with a pen. That's in case you were wondering. Now, next week is a fun one. Next week is the, lead singer of a group that had that are one of the biggest one-hit wonders of the 80s in the states anyway in the in europe and the uk they had a few more hits in the states they're known for one gigantic song that is still out there paying all the bills and i've been wanting to have this person on since the very beginning and it finally happened i'm so grateful that's next week so come back for that huge thanks as always to yana mamakiewicz my right hand man for being my partner in this Folks, you can like our page on Facebook and give us a like on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. 
I have a couple of book clubs uh, in the can. One of them may be coming out this weekend. If not, it should be next weekend for sure. So anyway, thanks everybody for all your support. We love you.